And as we come to Revelation 4 this week, it's important to keep a few things in mind. And uh, let me give them to you so you can keep them in mind as we read through chapter 4. First, these two chapters, chapters 4 and 5, are vision and thus filled with figurative language. And we're going to see that most evidently tonight. Secondly, these chapters are one vision. That is, chapters 4 and 5 constitute a single vision wherein John is taken to heaven and there he beholds a throne. And then thirdly, these chapters are foundational to all that follows. In fact, there's a sense in which chapters 4 and 5 describe activities that take place in heaven, and then those activities are fleshed out beginning in chapter 6 and following. And so we come to the second of seven sections in the book of Revelation that describe that time frame between Jesus' first and second coming. And so we're going to look at tonight, chapter 4. Notice beginning with verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper, and a sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded, proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures, full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, full of eyes around and within and they do not rest day or night saying holy 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 lord god almighty who was and is and is to come whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne who lives forever and ever the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Because this is a vision, it's figurative language. And if you just get the main points, I think the lesser points will make more sense. And it's most evident, isn't it, brethren, as we've read through this chapter, that Throne is the dominant theme. I think no fewer than 13 times we find the word throne in this chapter. And it's central because there's the throne and then everything else is described in relation to the throne. 
There's the 24 thrones around it. And then there's the four living creatures around it. The throne of God is central to this chapter. And in some sense, brethren, it's central to the whole book of Revelation and perhaps even to the entirety of Scripture. And so I want to consider with you chapter 4 under these two headings. First of all, you want to look at the residence of heaven. And then secondly, the activities in heaven. First, the residence. And as I've read through it, hopefully you notice that there's basically three residents in this heavenly vision. First, there's a king on a throne. Secondly, there's 24 elders on thrones. And then there's four living creatures. Notice first a king upon a throne. Verse 2. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Now it becomes very evident if we were to read into chapter 5 that the one John sees on the throne is God the Father. Because we're going to see that God the Son is found in the next chapter as the Lamb. In fact, it's a highly Trinitarian vision, chapters 4 and 5. Even in chapter 4, you have all three persons of the Trinity represented. You have the Father who's seated on the throne. You have the seven spirits before the throne. That's the Holy Spirit. And then you have the voice that leads John, that invites John into this throne room. And the voice is described in verse 1, and it's described with language borrowed from verse 1. And if we went back and read our chapter 1, we would find that it was the Son, Christ. So Christ is the one who's bringing John, introducing John into this throne room, into which you find the Father seated on the throne before his throne the Holy Spirit. Now John describes the glory of the Father with precious stones and then a rainbow. In fact, there's three precious stones, if you notice, Jasper, Sardis, and then the emerald is associated with the rainbow. And obviously these precious stones refer to the splendor and beauty of God himself. How else can one describe a being who is pure spirit? Because remember, this is a vision, brethren. God is a spirit. Children, and he doesn't have a body like man. These thrones are figurative. There's no literal throne. There's no literal rainbow. And yet there is a real, glorious, gracious, transcendent being here in John's vision seated on a throne. And so the first two stones, uh, Jasper and Sardis, simply underscore his grandeur, his uh, majesty, his glory. And then the third stone is associated with this rainbow. And so I want to suggest to you that the rainbow most evidently takes us back to Genesis 9, and it underscores God's 
covenantal faithfulness. If you remember, it's the sign of the Noahic covenant. Uh, All the covenants have signs that point to God's faithfulness. Uh, The Noahic covenant was, the sign of the Noahic covenant was the rainbow. The sign of the old covenant was circumcision. The sign of the new covenant, water baptism. All of these point to God's promises and his faithfulness. And so the rainbow, I think, simply points out God's grace and his mercy, or perhaps we could summarize it as his covenant faithfulness. So you have this beautiful description of God as transcendent, as dwelling in unapproachable light, as magnificent. All of that's kind of portrayed by the uh, precious gems. The rainbow underscores his faithfulness, and yet we find down in verse 5 that his justice and his righteousness are also represented. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. And so I think what we have here, brethren, is a beautiful description of God in all of his grandeur, in all of his divine perfections. His glory, his radiant splendor. And as I've said, not only is the Father here, but by inference you have the Son in the voice, and then in the last part of verse 5, the Holy Spirit. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. This simply speaks of the Holy Spirit as everywhere present. It also underscores the fullness of the Holy Spirit's ministry in communicating grace from the throne to those who are on earth. There's judgments coming from the throne, and this is important because we're going to see it beginning in chapter 6 and following, that from this throne comes both judgment and grace. Remember what we read in Hebrews 4, verse 16, that the throne that God sits on for the sake of Christ, the rainbow is now a throne of grace. And so from this very same throne comes judgment, lightnings, thunders, and voices, and mercy and grace, the seven spirits of God. But it's not only that we find a king upon a throne in this vision. Secondly, we find 24 elders. Verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. (coughs) Now, if I were to ask you who is represented in these 24 elders, I think most of you would rightly say the elect saints of the Old and New Testaments those who've gone into heaven and now are perfected spirits worshiping God alongside the angels now you ask why 24 well because there's 12 tribes and 12 apostles and in fact if you go further into the book of Revelation remember when the church comes down as the new Jerusalem a bride prepared for her groom Remember, again, you have the 12 tribes and the 12. Well, we're going to see several, several times in the book of Revelation, 12 and 12 made much of. Um, 
Here is just simply the 12 tribes of the Old Testament, the 12 apostles of the New Testament represent saints from the Old and New Testament eras. All of God's people from the beginning who've died in Jesus, brother. This is who's represented there. And notice how they're described. They're described as sitting on thrones. They're described as clothed in white robes and crowned with crowns of gold. Now, if you remember back in verse 6 of the first chapter, we're described as those who, for the sake of Jesus, have been made kings and priests. Christ has made us kings and priests. And here we're described with the imagery of being kings and priests. Kings were sitting on thrones with crowns. Priests, we have the long garments that would uh, take back any Jewish mind to the priests of the Old Testament. And what are the saints doing in heaven? They're reigning and they're worshiping God. They're reigning with Christ and they're worshiping God in Christ because we're going to see God the Father, chapter 4, and God the Son, the Lamb, chapter 5. So this is a Trinitarian worship and it's taking place in a temple. Brethren, this imagery, this whole chapter describes heaven in terms of the true tabernacle or temple of God. Everything in this chapter smells of temple worship. And you have priests in a temple, and the priests are the 24 elders. And I think that's probably what's meant here, though it's debated, in verse 6. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. Now, you might remember that in the Old Testament, before the tabernacle and temple, there's what was called in the Old Testament a sea of brass. And that just means a brass basin filled with water. And it underscored the fact that the priests who entered the tabernacle and temple were washed. They were cleansed ceremonially. Nobody could enter into God's presence without first being cleansed. And so too, nobody goes to heaven but those who've been cleansed. Furthermore, you have that uh, statement of the Holy Spirit in 5b, seven lamps of fire again in the tabernacle and temple. You had the lampstand. Brother, this is a most glorious description of God's throne room as a temple. And in the Old Testament, nobody could go into the Holy of Holies but the high priest once in the whole year. And here you have all of God's people in the Holy of Holies. And then, of course, you have cherubim, as we'll see here in a minute, represented in the four living creatures. So there's in every way here a depiction or a description of temple worship. And saints are offering up worship as new covenant perfected priests in the heavenly and true temple of God for all eternity. It really is a blessed chapter indeed. And as I've already intimated, there's thirdly, four living creatures which are angels. 
They're spoken of as creatures because they are, though they're exalted beings, they're nevertheless creaturely beings. There's only one, as we'll see in a minute, in this vision, in this temple, worthy of worship, and it's not the elders or the living creatures, as glorious as they are. Now, they're created to serve and worship God in his presence, and hence the wings, that, that underscores service, and eyes, that's knowledge and presence. Not that angels are all present, but there's many of them throughout the four corners of creation. And in fact, the imagery here of them having different kinds of faces, each four having a different kind of face, is actually borrowed. In fact, this whole passage is really borrowed from a couple, a couple of chapters back in Ezekiel. And Ezekiel 10, verses 20 and 21, were expressly told that these living creatures are cherubim. And again, cherubim being angelic beings. In fact, again, it goes back to the temple. Remember, if you go into the Holy of Holies, there's the mercy seat that was on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which covered over the law. And then there was the blood, of course, poured out on the mercy seat yearly on the Day of Atonement that underscored atonement from, from sin, because sin is the trespass or transgression of the law. But remember what was on top of the mercy seat? Two cherubim with wings. And that underscored the fact that this was God's throne room and the angels, the two cherubim, served him day and night. And so in this temple, in heaven, there's also a throne room and cherubim, four of them, that serve God according to verse 8 at the end, day and night. They're described as a lion, calf, man, and eagle. The only difference is, if you remember back in Ezekiel, each of them had four faces. In this particular case, each has one face. One has the face of a lion, the other a calf, the other a man, an eagle. And this simply, I think, portrays the angels as powerful, swift, and intelligent beings which worship God in heaven and serve him on earth. I think this is the simple meaning. Or at least this is what William Hendrickson believes. He says, in strength, they're like the lion. In ability to render service like the ox or calf. In intelligence like a man. And swiftness like an eagle. So it's describing the exalted nature of these cherubim. These, of these creatures, these angels. And they enlist all of that in service of their creator. All right, so that's a little bit of the residence in heaven. Notice, secondly, the activities. And here I want to answer the question, what's the primary activity, according to this vision, what's the primary activity in heaven? And if you've guessed worship, then you've guessed right. Because most evidently, brethren, this is what's happening in heaven. This is what's happening in John's vision in chapter 4 and 5. And of necessity, it's what's happening right now in heaven. This is what's happening in heaven. In that heavenly 
tabernacle. The 24 elders, Old and New Testament saints who died in Jesus are worshiping him along with the cherubim or the angels. But let me just break that down a little bit. And first of all, point out what they say, and then secondly, what they do. What they say. Well, they focus on God's attributes and sovereign work of creation, attributes such as his holiness, his eternality, his glory, honor, power, and sovereignty are all underscored. Verse 8, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. That's, brother, that little statement, that little, that little hymn of praise is stuffed full with all kinds of attributes of God. Now, holy, 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 you know, is borrowed from the other cherubim, that other vision that John had, or I mean that um, Isaiah had in Isaiah 6. Remember, the cherubim there are described very similar to, to the cherubim here, in fact. And they say the same thing, holy, holy, holy. And you know that the repetition of holy, the threefold repetition of holy, can mean one of two things. One, it's underscoring the Trinitarian nature of God, holy, holy, holy. Or it's just underscoring the fact that God is that infinitely, essentially, and perfectly holy. You know, in Hebrew language, and in, uh, especially in Hebrew language, repetition underscored intensity. So sometimes uh, something's uh, repeated to underscore intensity. You do know too, brethren, that to be honest, there's no other attribute underscored to the third degree. It's not to say that holiness is something more true of God than any other attribute because God is all of his attributes eternally, essentially, and simultaneously. But it is interesting, isn't it, that holiness seems, if any attribute, seems to be exalted in a unique way. Remember the Holy Spirit, the holy place, the holy of holies is where God dwells. And here the angels testify of the Father as three times holy. And then he's almighty, Lord God almighty. That underscores his power. And then who was and is and is to come underscores his eternality. And also his self-existence. He is. He always is. And he is of and from himself. He's the I am, the great I am. And then you have uh, these attributes basically restated down in verse 11. In verse 8, of course, it's the living uh, creatures or the angels. In verse 11, it's the saints. And they underscore his worthiness, his glory, honor, power, and the sovereignty of God in creation. So they underscore not only his character, but his work. Now, we're going to see here in a moment that uh, I think chapter 4 is intentionally focusing upon God the Father and creation whereas chapter 5 is going to intentionally focus upon Christ or the Lamb and redemption but these obviously go together and what do they do? 
Well, verse 10, in particular, the 24 elders, they fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their thrones, crowns before the throne. By the way, this is where Casting Crowns gets its name. A group that my wife likes very much so. And cast their crowns before the throne. Why do they cast their crowns before the throne, but in open acknowledgement that he alone is worthy to get all the credit, brother? And that's why they say they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are you are worthy, O Lord. They're acknowledging that God and God alone is worthy. Oh, my wife is here. Well, here's if you didn't know that, sweetie, this is where that group gets his name. All right, so that's the activities of heaven. Or perhaps the activity of heaven. Worship. Okay, now what I want to do is answer this question. Why are chapters 4 and 5 placed where they're placed? Why does having dealt with the seven letters that are much more historical, now we're beginning the visionary aspect of the book of Revelation, and the first two chapters describe this transcendent heavenly vision. Christ takes John into the very throne room of heaven. Why? That's my question I want to answer. And I want to give you three reasons. Reason one. To remind them, and, and by them I'm thinking particularly of the seven churches. Because remember the seven churches are still in many ways the audience to which these visions are given. And remember the seven churches of Asia Minor were merely a representation of all the churches of all time. Alright, so to remind them that God is on his throne. I think this is the most obvious, isn't it? Reason why chapters 4 and 5 are placed where they are. Brother, just go back in your mind for a moment through those seven letters. All, all of them, to some degree, were enduring all manner of problems. Problems within, problems without. Persecution, tribulation, affliction, misuse. And in some sense, this is kind of the whole point of the book of Revelation. Really, we, could, and we said this back in our introductory sermon on the book. What is the main point of the book of Revelation? But to encourage suffering Christians that Jesus Christ is on his throne, brethren. And this is why, like I've said, throne dominates these two chapters. I think there's 17 or 18 times 13 times in chapter 4 and then 4, 5 or 6 times in chapter 5 the word throne is used. Now I wish I could remember but I want to say it's 40-ish times in total in the book of Revelation. There's a, there's a real sense in which throne is the dominant focus of the whole book of Revelation. And what does throne symbolize? God's sovereignty. The fact that God is on his 
throne. Brethren, we typically say that, don't we? God is on his throne. But we rarely, really, really believe it. We believe it. Brethren, we really need to believe it more. And as Christians, it's easy, isn't it, to kind of flippantly say, God is sovereign. And it's much more difficult to really enter into the comfort afforded by that grand assertion. God is sovereign. Brethren, God is on his throne. God is on his throne when the day is good and when the day is bad. When it's raining or when there's sunshine. When everything is going as you wish it would or when it's the very opposite. Remember, these Christians are suffering. They're being killed all day long. And I think this is one main point of the visions. Let me, out of all the commentaries I have on Revelation, and I probably have uh, 20 of them, I still go back to William Hendrickson as the best. This is like the big daddy, even though it's smaller than some of them, but it's the big daddy of Revelation commentaries. And he says this, chapters 4 and 5 teach one main lesson. Now William Hendrickson, when he says something like that, you better get your ears opened up. Chapters 4 and 5 teach one main lesson. Unless we clearly grasp this point, we shall never see the glorious unity of this book. We shall lose ourselves in all the trees. That one main lesson may be expressed. Now he's going to tell us what the main lesson is. It may be expressed in the words of the psalmist. Jehovah reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits above the cherubim. He's quoting from the Psalms. Let the earth be moved. The assurance of this truth should impart comfort to believers in the midst of fiery trials. This is why this vision of the universe governed by the throne precedes the symbolic description of the trials through which the church must pass beginning in, pass, beginning in chapter 6. Brother, we're going to see in chapter 6 and following, there's this graphic description of intense persecution and tribulation through which the church has to pass. Then he goes on to say, this is a very beautiful arrangement. In other words, it's a very beautiful arrangement to have chapters 4 and 5 precede chapter 6. Okay, here's a deep theological question. Charles isn't here, so I'm not going to pick on him. Does chapter 4 and chapter 5 precede chapter 6? Yes. It does. Good answer, Charles. And do you know why? Because chapters 4 and 5 are reminding us that God in Christ is on his throne before we get to the suffering and the hardships of chapter 6. So when you as a Christian or when your family or when our church undergoes difficulty and hardship, it's not a cop-out, brethren, to say God is on his throne. 
God is on his throne. And that throne is a throne of grace for his people. Listen to the old hymn. This is a hymn that's called God is Still on His Throne. And this is how the uh, chorus goes. This is the chorus. God is still on his throne and he will remember his own. Uh, Maybe Mr. Spigger remembers this. It's not in our hymn book. He doesn't remember it either. This is a real old one. God is still on his throne and he will remember his own. Though trials upset you and burdens distress you, he never will leave you alone. God is still on the throne and he will remember his own. His promise is true. He will not forget you. God is still on his throne. A rather simple chorus, admittedly. It's not going to win any awards for its poetic beauty or complexity. But brethren, it should win every award for its theological accuracy. God is on his throne. And he will remember his own. A second reason, and it's closely related to the first, to remind them that overcomers sit on their throne. Brethren, this vision surely was a big comfort to these persecuted Christians. At present, saints remain in part sinful and in constant battle with their enemies. Okay, so just look at how how they're described in heaven. Robes of white, that means there's no more sin. Crowns of gold on thrones in Christ. No more battle. It was, uh, what, well, it's probably been a couple months now that since Mrs. Miller went on to heaven. And one of the things that came back to mind through that time for me was what Pastor Albert Martin said in his little book on how to grieve as a Christian, how to respond when a loved one dies in Jesus. He said, focus mostly on what they gained and not on what you've lost. And I think this is what uh, these visions are intended to teach. Remember, brother, these Christians are being uh, persecuted and their husbands and, and wives and, and parents and loved ones are dying. And I think what uh, the visions do is, one, they comfort the bereaved, right? And they motivate the weak and the tired. Don't give up. Don't give in. And so, if you remember back to the seven letters, each of the seven letters end with motivations. And uh, out, of the seven, out of the seven letters and those motivations, you could really reduce them down to these. You get a crown, a throne, and a white robe. No more sin. No more battle. Thirdly, or a third reason, to remind them of the priority and privilege of worship. 
In other words, what's taking place, remember what's, what's taking place in heaven in chapter 4 and 5 is taking place at the same time that chapter 6 and following take place. We, we, can't, we have to remember that this isn't necessarily like chronological. It's not like this chapters 4 and 5, there's worship, and then after worship, there's tribulation. No, there's worship all the while there's tribulation. There's, there's worship in heaven. Remember, brethren, chapters 4 and 5 describe for us activities in heaven. That's exactly why chapter 4, verse 1 starts with heaven, and chapter 6, verse 1 and following starts with earth, on the earth. In other words, what chapters 4 and 5, I think, are reminding us is this. Since there's, since there's worship in heaven... There ought to be worship on earth. Or put another way, if Christians will worship God for eternity in heaven, then worship should be a priority for them now on earth. Or perhaps I can even go further than that. If we were to take the time and consider Paul's grand statement about worship, one of the most grandest statements on worship in the New Testament in Hebrews 12. Where he talks about we've come to Mount Calvary. Mount Zion. And Jesus and the blood of a better covenant. And we enter into worship with that church that's in heaven. And there he kind of connects the victorious triumphant church in heaven. With the militant church on earth. And he, and he, he, he implies that we're one church brethren. You know, our fathers have always understood that when we gather on the Lord's Day to publicly worship God, there's a sense in which we enter into the very throne room of heaven itself, brethren. There's a sense in which we align ourselves with the 24 elders and the four living creatures. And you know that worship can be viewed in, from two perspectives. There is worship that we might call general and that, of course, takes place in our homes and in our lives, uh, Monday to Saturday. Uh, remember what Paul said in Romans 12, that we're to offer up our bodies, because we're priests, as uh, living sacrifices, right? But surely, brethren, we understand also that there's what we might call formal worship. And this takes place on the best day of the week. And it's there where Jesus says, two or three have gathered in my name to conduct my business. I'm uniquely present. So I want to suggest in closing that this uh, vision affords us information on how worship is to look on earth because it's to reflect that worship in heaven. And notice three things about it. First, God alone, Father, Son, and Spirit, is worthy of worship. No mere creature is worthy of worship, brother. And I think this is why, in part, angels, though they're exalted and glorious beings and privileged beings, are described as living creatures. And that's why the 24 uh, elders say in verse 11, you are 
worthy, O Lord. Brethren, that's, that's really what worship is about. It's acknowledging God's worth. By the way, you find the same thing in chapter 5, verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll. That's a reference to the Lamb. And this is really the essence of the first commandment, isn't it? You shall have no other gods before or alongside me. Fundamental to worship is ascribing or giving worth to God. Verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him. See, they're giving God worth. Now, I'm going to clarify that in a minute. They're giving God, they're giving God glory, honor, and thanks. Verse 11, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory, honor, and power. Brother, only God is worthy to be given worship. Only God is worthy to receive worship. No other creature is worthy, or no creature is worthy of giving worship or receiving it except the Creator. Thus, to give God glory is to publicly and verbally acknowledge Him as glorious, honorable, and powerful. Or, to glorify God is to own God as glorious is to acknowledge God as glorious and it's not to make God glorious. So when it says we're giving him glory, it doesn't mean we're making him glorious. Brother, he's already that if we acknowledge it or not. He can't be any more glorious. But what we are doing in worshiping God, let me ask you this. Okay, let's put it like this. Last Lord's Day, well, let's put it this way. This coming Lord's Day, as we anticipate it. What are we gathered to do? We're gathered to publicly and corporately acknowledge that God alone is worthy. Rather than that's what we're doing in worship. We're acknowledging that he alone is glorious. He alone is honorable. He alone is powerful. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. And here's why. For you created all things. So first we learn that God alone is worthy of worship. Secondly, God must be worshiped with adoration and awe. It's probable that these little hymns, these little songs of praise in verse 8 and 10, found their way into the early church's liturgy. They probably sang these in their public worship. These are little, very old and ancient hymns or songs of praise. And so what I'm saying here is, those in heaven praise God and they bow before God, they praise God, and they bow before God with a deep sense of His holiness and faithfulness. 
Brother, look, they're, they're bowing, the, the, uh, the 24 elders, verse 10. They're bowing and worshiping him as holy, right? As powerful, as just and righteous. Verse 5, because from the throne proceeds lightning, thunderings, and voices. But also as merciful, gracious, and powerful. And here's why. There's a rainbow around the throne, brethren. There's a rainbow. And the rainbow underscores God's covenant fidelity. And so when we worship this Sunday, or when you worship tonight, when you go home or tomorrow, but especially as we gather in the house of God on the Lord's Day, we ought to worship none save God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we ought to worship Him with the disposition of adoration and awe, joy and holy fear. And this is the essence of the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That is, we're not to speak of him. We're not to give him glory. We're not to give him praise. We're not to give him adoration without our hearts being truly impressed with a sense of his divine majesty. That's the essence of the third commandment. The essence of the third commandment deals with the heart in worship. We're not to take the name of the Lord our God emptily or in vain, without meaning. We're to feel, we're to know in the deepest recesses of our heart and soul who this God is. And so we are to worship him in adoration and in holy awe, bowing before him, brethren, if not physically, certainly spiritually with our hearts. And then finally, God must be worshipped as the sovereign creator and sustainer of all things. Verse 11, for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created. It's a beautiful little short statement of God's sovereignty in creation. We are to come and worship God who created our... Brethren, we're going to see next week that we are to come and worship the Lamb who died for our sins. But Jesus could never have come as the lamb to die for our sins if we had never been created. So we celebrate creation first and creation last. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in our worship. You know, some of you might know this. Until the 16th century, most believed the earth was at the center of the universe. And uh, what they then thought was the sun was the center of the universe. My brethren, you know, Revelation 4 already told us 2,000 years ago that neither of those well, not, neither of those are physically the center of the universe. But you know who or what is actually at the center of the universe? God is. The throne is. This is the imagery of this passage. God on his throne is 
at the heart of everything. God and God alone, brethren, is the center of all creation. He created it and he created it for his own glory and that and for that he alone is worthy of worship. Well, we want to sing then in closing our time of devotion a hymn that possibly has come to mind. If you go in the back of our hymn book, uh, look up the text and uh, Revelation 4, you'll find two texts in our hymn book that's taken from Revelation 4. And the first one is when we want to sing, hymn 87. 